Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to episode 31 of Double Hop Beat, a bi-weekly podcast taking the pulse of the beer and brewing scene. I'm James, home brewer and beer enthusiast. And I'm Shannon, a beer intermediate. And this week, we are joined by a guest who you might remember from episode 7, MacGyver at Home Brewing, our friend and home brewer, Jack Jack Lampson of Lampson Brewing. How you doing, Jack? Hey, I'm good, guys. 7 to 31. Holy cow. I know. I've uh, been cranking these out. You are our first repeat uh, guest, Whoa. so you, you got that title. <laughs> I am I am honored. So uh, we're just going to start right in here on, this is kind of like the end of our series of all of you have known, uh, specializing on the different components that make up a beer. And now we're finally at the point where we're going to be talking about recipe development. Yeah, putting it all together and seeing what you can come up with. It's daunting. It can be tough to wrap your head around it. And so, Jack, you're you're well aware as much as I am on how difficult it is to make a recipe and kind of the steps involved in making a recipe and kind of when you're getting started in home brewing, how you kind of have to go through certain steps before you just jump in and just start throwing stuff in a, you know, your your, your brew kettle, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think for me, the natural progression was, uh, you know, everybody, I think, starts with a clone kit. Uh, you want to see not only can I do this, but can I replicate it? And that will you know, be my gauge of success. Uh, I'll say this about recipe development is it's nice in a way to not have that comparison, if that makes sense, because you're not trying to brew something that's going to live up to something you already know. You're creating something entirely new. Thus, it's only as good as you think it is. Whereas I remember, I think my first, my first beer I ever made was a Newcastle clone and it was fine, but you know, I was like, (laughs) I I remember tasting it and going, you know, it's just not a Newcastle. Yeah. I think my first beer, I was shooting for a warm town, be hoppy clone. And boy, was that like shooting for the moon without having a spaceship (laughs) ready to, ready to go. You know, it's, it's reality hits you really quick when you taste it and you're just like, Man, this isn't even close. This isn't even like the worm part of Wormtown. So disappointed, and I said, "Well, you don't work at Wormtown, so like I a, mean- this is like a worm village." Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. right. It's like I got all the dirt and like a glass, you know, container, but you know, I'm missing the worms. I'm missing all the, you know, their food. What the hell they eat? You know, it's like <laughs> it's like you can't have yeah. a worm farm without the worms. You know, exactly. So I, you know, that was one aspect of creating my own recipes that was fun. But even then, I think I, I dipped my toe in, certainly, to start. And I did so by taking uh, a recipe and only adapting it a little bit. And I think mm-hmm. the way that I would do that, I think one of the easiest ways to do that, um, at least in my experience, has been uh, adding adding or subtracting or substituting hops. Um, because I think it can be one of the easiest things to identify and especially with breweries out there turning out smash recipes uh you know single malt and single hop uh for those of you who don't know the acronym uh but it allows you to identify a hop profile that you like so then i found myself saying you know man i I love this clone recipe or i love this beer but what if i put in some nelson hops you know which have such a unique character to them uh instead of cascade or something like that what would that do to the recipe and i think that was sort of my first foray into recipe development yeah i think it's also one of those things where you're just if you're a craft beer lover, you're drinking so many craft beers anyways that you kind of start to narrow in of, okay, what hops does this IPA have that I really love? And then you start finding patterns in all the IPAs that you've 
can kind of identify with, or at least that's kind of what I started with in terms of which hops I wanted to use within my IPAs to emulate, kind of get those flavor profiles in. Absolutely. So you touched on first kind of following a clone recipe or even like some homebrew recipes that you get with a kit to kind of get the process, kind of understand, you know, the, just the, the whole cleanliness, the basically how to brew a beer and kind of getting yourself in that mindset. So now we're moving past that. You've already did the homebrew kits. You've done some clone recipes following some of your favorite brews that you like to like to drink. Now we're going into, all right, let's create either an entirely new recipe or modifying a recipe, as Jack, you mentioned, uh, to a point where you can call it your own. Yeah, and I think it's, uh, like you said off the top, you know, kind of a daunting task. And uh, like with anything, I think it's a... It, uh, is interesting to have me on for this one too, because a lot of this is MacGyvering a homebrew recipe. You know, you're going to try things and they're going to be not good and you're going to do a lot of research. And then eventually, you know, you'll put something together and you'll be like, again, that not having that comparison is huge, but then figuring out whether or not you actually like it and whether or not it was a success is uh, kind of a whole different ball game. But um it's, it, I think identifying, you know, a, a style can be important too, you know, and that's where when I was putting together first recipes, I'd draw inspiration from something like the season or, you know, okay, what's everybody else brewing? Cause I, mm-hmm. you know, probably don't want my first original recipe to be a, a heavy stout in the middle of summertime. Exactly. Exactly. I was saying to James earlier that, you know, summer's to me more refreshing. So if it's the middle of winter time, I'm also not going to brew more of a summer beer and in the summertime, not going to brew a winter warmer because that's, you know, nobody wants to be sitting in 100 degree heat drinking a winter warmer. So for this, so we're, for this show, we're going to be taking all grain recipe building. So in the five gallon and 10 gallon batches. And I just want to start off with some of the general tips, um, which I think Jack, you've touched on a couple of them already for us. Um, so the first one is the fewer ingredients lets you evaluate your beer more effectively. So trying to pare down when you're first trying to develop a new recipe, now don't just go all in and start throwing whatever you want in there. Just kind of to keep it simple uh, ingredients at a time. And that way you can kind of judge how it's going to affect the beer. Yeah. So Jack, why don't you talk about, you mentioned the smash recipes uh, for listeners. Uh, what is a smash recipe and how do they kind of create one? So you're looking at something that is smash, single malt and single hot. Uh, something very basic that might be just a base two row Um, and then you're taking one hop and using it throughout the entire process and single hop. Uh, and it gives you a real idea for the ways that a hop will interact in the three primary stages in bittering, in flavor and in aroma. And it really gives you the ability. I think, uh, obviously you're going to tinker with the amounts in different ways based on what you're doing. You know, a a new England IPA won't have as much bittering. And and so it, it will, based on what the hop is and whether it's a dual purpose hop or a bittering hop will help to dictate the style. I think in my experience and James, tell me if this uh, rings true for you as well would be that most often what you're seeing with a smash recipe is either a session or a, a regular IPA, right? Yeah, absolutely. That seems to be like the most common smash that I've seen for recipes. I, Just because with some of the other styles and techniques, there are a lot more specialty ingredients that go into making those flavors. So I I do agree with you. I think the pale ales and the IPAs are really, 
the easiest smash recipes to kind of produce, like the pale ale, I think is probably one of the simpler of those to do. And I think the reason for that is probably because when you get into something like, let's take again, a stout, for example, you know, then you're talking about those uh, specialty grains, adding your biscuit or your chocolate or something like that, where an IPA, a pale ale can be clean and pure, same as a lager can be, but you're not necessarily going to have the same hop influence in a lager that you would in an IPA. I think it gives you the most room to play. And I think it's very true too to like the styles that most people are drinking right now as well. I remember when I started the homebrew shop, everyone in the homebrew shop recommended starting with an amber ale, but that was also during the winter time. So it could have been something, you know, you're going to recommend a beer based on what you, we mentioned, the season as well, and just factoring mm-hmm. in how long fermentation takes to, you're not going to have that beer ready, you know, in a week. Yeah. And I think that also with the more simple, beers you can you're not being outrageous you're not reinventing the wheel so it's a good place to start and kind of build up your confidence from there um like i said instead of trying to do something really crazy to start and then you get kind of discouraged from doing more in the future because it tastes horrible absolutely (laughs) and i think even simple is kind of just a very broad way of talking about it because it's really not that simple when you think about it Mm -hmm. because you can you can even take that one hop and one malt recipe and you can tweak it so much that you can get multiple varieties from that those two combinations whether you like jack said you add the hops in for bitterness or you add more hops in the end for aroma and so it's it's really you can tweak it Pretty much as much as you want, kind of. And this is why you guys are talking about it, and I'm listening because clearly, I am. A, I've only helped you with one beer, so I'm I'm at the hands of the masters right now. <laughs> master of destruction, well, but I'll take it. Yeah, I was gonna say I was gonna say a master of none because really we're not. Even, I personally, I'm not even anywhere close to these brew masters and the skills they have. So I'm not gonna pretend that I know everything either. You know, I'm still pretty new to, to it myself. Well, we say. do have an award winning brewer on the line right now. So so Jack, yeah. So you've entered the competition scene, and so one of the things when you're building a recipe that we want people to be mindful of is if you are doing competitions, depending on which competition you're entering in, there are basic rules or guidelines depending on which competition you're entering for styles, correct? Yeah, absolutely. So you're talking something like the BJCP guidelines. Exactly. Brewery judge certification program, if I'm not mistaken. My success uh, in competition has been more geared toward... um, uh, drinker's choice, uh, things like a, a popular vote, uh, less than an actual critique of style, which, uh, you know, I don't, I don't quite know how I would fare in that other category. I, I know that all of my beers, at least, you know, according to the beer Smith program that I use, they all fall within the recommended, um, fields that would, that would qualify it for BJCP, um, categories and i'll say this too is you know they have an entire section of that program that's you know additional or uh, i can't remember how they actually phrase it but you know there's tons of wiggle room within those styles you know you can't brew some you can't brew an ipa uh so perfect example i was gonna say you can't brew an ipa that's um 
the color of a stout, but you kind of can, and they're called black IPAs and they mm-hmm. fall under their own category. So I think with the explosion in craft beer, I think, you know, those BG, BJCP guidelines get redone all the time and you're just finding different ways to fit different things in because people keep making up different stuff. Right. Exactly. And I think it's also like we were talking in a previous episode, Shannon, how there are those that are debating right now within the homebrew kind of scene of, well, all right, well, is this true to style? Is it, should we call this a whole new style? And kind of the grading critiques of, well, some people are entering in their same exact beer in four different categories of styles of beer to try and be that one beer that sticks out when they're maybe pushing the limits of within that style. So I don't know where you fall in that argument, Jack, but I'm pretty much aligned with, you know, craft beer is all about reinventing and, you know, being creative. So I say if you all power to you, if, you know, you can create something yeah. unique. And I, I, I say uh, what I said before about, you know, I'm not being sure how I'd fare with the other stuff a little bit uh, self in a self-deprecating way, only because I am kind of my own worst critic with this kind of stuff, <laughs> which is what my wife will tell you. But uh, I do think that, you know, if, if somebody who's listening wants to get into the competition scene, I do think that finding someone uh, that is doing a voted on by the people drinking kind of festival would definitely be the way to go because the critique of your beer from a statistical or analytical BJCP way can be discouraging. You know, if something is not, you think you've made a great beer, but it doesn't, you know, ring true to style 17 B, whatever it might be, then, you know, I think it's easy to fail, like feel like you failed. And I don't think that's the case where with the kind of competitions that I've won and had success at people just say, you know, wow, this is a good beer, you know, regardless of what category it falls into. Um, you know, I like this and I like to drink it. So I'm going to vote for you, which at the end of the day, I want to drink my beer and I want other people mm-hmm. to enjoy drinking my beer. So that's, that's why I've enjoyed that kind of competition and why I would recommend people seek out something like that rather than and there's nothing wrong with feedback mm-hmm. uh but but i do think that there's something to be said for um getting a, a, and not to mention volume i mean i got you know there were hundreds of people at this thing so i got to talk to a whole bunch of different people different personalities and and flavor profiles what people like and don't like so i got a wide range of feedback yeah i think that's almost what you want too is you want people to be able to drink your beer you know it's great to have an award in the yeah. style but if kind of everyone was like, oh, I mean, it was, it was good, but I would prefer this other one. To me, it's more popularity and people's choices, a little bit higher acclaim, I would say. Yeah. And I think you might go to the store and, you know, if you see something that won a, uh, a medal at the Great American Beer Fest or something like that, you might be more interested in it. But, you know, at the level that we're talking about, are you going to be more interested in something that falls into a completely clean style or something that everybody tells you is kind of out there and funky but really Mm -hmm. really good yeah yeah i mean i think we saw that even on the commercial beer stage when we were in minnesota for that beer festival Mm -hmm. some of those beers that won the medals were the most unique beers i've ever had in my life and i think that's just something like a testament of like they're at that point where it's not i'd almost call it like experimental because it's something so new and refreshing that you know, you can't necessarily put it into a certain category. Very much so. 
Um, so one of the things that when I were, James and I were discussing this episode, he brought up is the malt grain bill. And I was like, what is that? What is a malt grain bill? It sounds like a grocery list or something. <laughs> um, so James, why don't you tell us a little bit about that? And I was almost going to make the joke that, yeah, it's the bill that every home brewer gets yeah, exactly. uh, after getting all his brewing ingredients and tries to justify to his wife. Yeah, it's cheaper than buy- buying beer. <laughs> yeah, I've been in that boat. But uh, so, yeah, the grain bill in Jack, if you have a better definition than me, let me know. Uh, I, I think of it just pretty much like Shannon said, it's a list of your your malts and your, your grains and adjuncts that you're using in your beer recipe prior to all your hop additions. So this is what creates the wort. Absolutely. Yeah. And anything that's going to give you your, uh, well, no, I guess I can't even say anything that's going to give you your (laughs) fermentables because you can certainly add in something like maple syrup yesterday, but I think people would traditionally call it the, certainly the bulk majority of your fermentable sugars. Right. And then, so at least when I was first learning kind of like how much grains do I need for like my five gallon recipe, it's put pretty much in the pounds of grains per batch of beer, like per gallon. Is that kind of how you've gone through how many pounds of grains you've gone through for your 10-gallon batch? Yeah, pretty much. And then, you know, upgrading upgrading from a, a 5 to a 10 um, isn't always a straight double conversion. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I find it to be pretty much the case, yeah. And then I tend to, you know, start with a, a base like two-row and then, um, you know, in Beersmith, I'll do something like, you know, okay – uh, plug in for a 10 pound batch, call it maybe 16 pounds of two row. Um, and then I'll say, okay, well, there's the base of my fermentable sugars. And then I'll say, well, you know, I'd like this to be uh, a little red or, you know, have a little bit of biscuit character. And then I start uh, playing around, you know, okay, do I want to do some care of 60, 80? How red do I want it to get? Uh, I'll never forget brewing one of my first stouts and, being surprised when I, uh, when I plugged it into Beersmith and it said, you know, you only need half a pound or a quarter of a pound of black patent malt, which doesn't impart all that much flavor, but it imparts a ton of color. And, you know, I plugged it in and clicked save. And then the little image that shows you what your beer should look like based on the, um, love it bond, the, uh, character of the, of the color. And it turned it pitch black. And I said, Whoa, that, <laughs> yeah, had, drastic. I had eight pounds of, you know, golden malt and then a, a quarter of a pound of this black malt. And all of a sudden my beer is pitch black. Like I couldn't believe that was all I needed. So I think like an, another tip for people out there is to ensure there is a balance between your base malts and your specialty greens. Like I know I've had recipes where I've had pretty much 70% where base malt, 30% specialty greens. And once I kind of added more specialty grains and kind of tweaked that balance, the ratio too much, it kind of ruined the beer. You want that base malt to really, there's a reason why the majority I think of your grain bill is your base malts. Would Mm -hmm. you agree, Jack? Definitely the case. Yeah. I think, um, and it goes back to something that Shannon said earlier when you, when she was offering up that first piece of advice, which was keep it simple. Um, you know, it's going to give you, uh, it's like going back to fifth grade science, right? You know, you, mm-hmm. you change one variable at a time. Otherwise you don't know what was the outlier, what was wrong with what you were doing. Um, so I think keeping that grain bill simple, especially starting out in recipe formulation can be a, a huge help with the beer that I, uh, took first place for um, a while back in one of these competitions was my New England IPA, and it 
is uh, two-row uh, white wheat and some flaked oats. And that's it. And the 70% of the grain bill is two-row. Flaked toast sounds like a cereal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, like a you know, very like a fiber-heavy cereal. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I wanted that hazy, cloudy New England IPA, and and that's uh, that's what gave it to me. You know, and just a little bit of white wheat and a little bit of oats and done. Yeah, I think it's, especially with the New England IPA style, I think just adding that wheat or oats to the recipe is going to give you an advantage in head retention and creamy mouthfeel as well. That's kind of characteristic of those juicy, hazy New England IPAs. Um, so what do you, <laughs> once you've got the, the grain bill outlined, then what are you going to decide on next? Is it your hops? Is it your yeast? What's our next step? Uh, James, where do you go? So I usually go to hops next just because... They play the role of the bitterness, adding bitterness into your recipe. And you kind of want to make sure your hops and your grain bill kind of align. Like you wouldn't necessarily pick, you know, a hop that's going to have a lot of citrus flavors and have high bitterness if you're going for a stout recipe. Or, you know, you want to make sure that your hop selection aligns with whatever beer style you're going with and also what you've chosen for your base malts. Definitely agree. I think that we're still, we're on the right track as far as the order in which you go. But I'll say this, a lot of the time, a hop might be my inspiration for a recipe. So I'll backtrack a little bit and I'll start with a hop or at least start with the idea for a hop. And then I'll go back, start with my grain bill and go through the order that we were just talking about. But then when it comes to actually figuring out where to plug those hops in, that's mm -hmm. where I find, you know, some interesting research on the hop and look at it. Uh, there's a couple of great websites out there that offer tables um, with a brief description, as well as what might be a substitute or a good complementary hop to go along with it. So I find resources like that, you know, might lead me to like the first time I brewed with Nelson and uh, a website suggested, you know, oh, pair it with this or that. And, uh, you know, because Nelson has sort of a you love it or hate it kind of uh, character to it. So uh, it was interesting. And I didn't really know what I was going for with that. So that's where I started and branched out from there. And I mean, the Internet can be uh, your best friend and your worst enemy. You know, it's a little <laughs> it can, I, I compare it a little bit to going on WebMD where, you know, mm -hmm. you say that you have a headache and WebMD tells you you're dying. Yep. <laughs> Very true. And you mentioned a couple times there are great apps out there and websites for this that kind of you don't need to be a subject matter expert on all the hops, all the yeast strains, everything like that. And Beersmith is the app that I use when making a recipe. And I think it's probably the best place to go that has your all in you know, knowledge base and your recipe builder as well. Yeah, and I watch those uh sliders at the bottom uh for anybody that doesn't use beersmith you know as you plug stuff in uh there are these and you select a style within bjcp guidelines and as you adjust grain you know this one slider ticks up into the middle of the range and says you're within the acceptable parameters for this beer to be within this style which can be incredibly helpful and i, I think it's too important for home brewers and, and commercial brewers, too, they do hop substitutes all the time based on what's available and also price for home brewers. I mean, price can be a big difference on, I know, Citra hops and Galaxy are now very hard to find, and they've gone up in price because that demand for those hazy 
IP, juicy IPAs are so prevalent now that everyone's using those hops. So it's nice and refreshing to find a substitute and it's not going to break the bank. If any listeners want to pass along a good citra substitute that they've found, I would very much appreciate it because that is about, (laughs) (laughs) feels like 90% of my cost goes towards citra hops. I buy them every time I see them, you know, in a one pound bag, if I can get it at my local homebrew store, just because I, I haven't found for me what I think is a great substitute yet. But yeah, it's all over the discussion boards. You see people talking about it, trying to find a more inexpensive way to do it. And a lot of people I've heard of hoarded hops. It's kind of like a new thing where they put, you know, when they find these hops at good prices or when they can get it, they just get a bunch and put it in their freezer. Yeah, unfortunately, uh, I might be a little guilty of that. (laughs) We're not hoarding toilet paper. I was going to say, are you a toilet paper hoarder? (laughs) I wouldn't say it's a bad thing, you know. It's not a bad thing. It's just it's something that I think almost derives from like a necessity, right? When you're brewing all the time, you want to have your ingredients, especially if you have a recipe down and you need to do a competition and you need that hop because you know that works, then, you know, you could get in a situation where do you want to necessarily have to find a substitute and you're not really sure how it's going to play out if you're close to competition time. Yeah, that's definitely what I've run into with that New England IPA. Um, And specifically with, uh, I, I just brewed a version of it that... I didn't have enough uh, Amarillo for. And so instead I subbed in Idaho seven, just a hop that I had around that I had really enjoyed. And uh, yeah, the beer just wasn't as good. It was, (laughs) it was good in its own right, but it, it just, it's exactly what we were talking about. It wasn't what I wanted. And so, you know, that was a, a lesson in that. Yeah. So it just goes to show us that hops really play a big part in the outcome of your beer. Oh yeah. Uh, and then the next ingredient that I think is my favorite, because we all know how much I love flocculation, um, <laughs> is flocculation nation yeah. is Shannon's like number one thing of brewing that she like is obsessed. And I'm going to, I'm trying to get Shannon to be my yeast cultivator because she can just talk about flocculation all day. Yeah. There we go. <laughs> uh, so yeast is the ingredient that influences the beer flavor the most. I would say it's one of the Maybe. most for sure. Like would you say, Jack? Say I think it's certain. I think it certainly can be. Yeah. Uh, I think that there is, um, as with anything with brewing, you know, you've got wiggle room with it, but I think the raw, I'll say this, there's plenty of room to do something right, but if you do something wrong, it can have the biggest detriment to your beer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really good way of putting it, Jack. I think it's kind of like one of those, not catch-22s, it's kind of, it's in a very important part of your recipe that I think some people overlook because they just can just buy it in the store and it's just like adding it in. But you have to factor in like the temperature that the yeast also, you want to make sure that that yeast is going to have a high yield as well. I've had many people say like, hey, I put my yeast in, it's not, you know, it's not fermenting, what's going on? And it's one of those common things, I think, as a home brewer that you kind of have to experience and know that you don't want to pitch your yeast once you're pretty much at a boil and it's still the temperature is sky high because you're going to kill off all your yeast. Oh, yeah. my I mean, my brew process starts like 48 hours out. Uh, you know, I don't know if you do starters for your stuff, uh, but, you know, I start I pull my yeast out of the refrigerator 
my liquid yeast out of the refrigerator and let it get up to room temperature for at least 12 hours, if not 24, put it on a starter sometimes for 22. And then, you know, bad weather or something like that. I've gone as long as two days after pitching a starter before actually doing a brew day. Um, and the difference between pouring right out of a pouch and having done a starter is night and day for me. And I think it's also, you can save your yeast as well. If you have a fermenter that you can actually collect your yeast as well from your strain. So you kind of have that reusability aspect. If you're counting your cells, your yeast cells, and you're paying close attention, like you said, to um, a good yeast starter. Absolutely. Harvesting my own yeast is a beast that I've not yet tackled. <laughs> I'd like to. I, you know, I have the equipment for it. I've got my, my spiked fermenter, which I love, a nice conical stainless fermenter. But it's just, uh, I, I'll admit, I'll, I'll tell you guys, uh, I haven't told anybody, I'm scared of doing my own yeast. <laughs> Well, now it's out there for the masses. <laughs> now it's out I there. Know, Jack, I know. Jack Lampson is, uh, of Lampson Brewing is scared of yeast. Shouldn't we I'm all? I'm scared of yeast. She's, she is fickle. Yeah, I was going to say, it's, a, you know, one wrong move can just ruin everything. It's, I mean, not for beer, but for, you know, baking bread and using it in that context for me, I've definitely experienced, like, I've had multiple bread batches that don't rise because the yeast is not the right temperature or it's a little bit too old because I forgot it was in, you know, the fridge or the cabinet. So um, definitely can kind of commiserate with you on that. It's a, it is a fickle, fickle friend. You should, you, you know, people should remember that it is, it's a wild thing, you know, mm -hmm. yeast is alive and, you know, whereas, you know, the hops are, you know, plants and things like that, you know, you're dealing with these microorganisms that sometimes, I think they get in there sometimes. And they're like, yeah, I don't want to do this today. Like I'm lazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Aren't we supposed to be in quarantine and watching Netflix? Like I'm confused. Yeah, yeah, What's right. Going on well, here? I, I am. The yeast is essential. All of a sudden, come on. <laughs> <laughs> essential workers, those yeasts. Now, wouldn't this be a great title? Is if if Lampson Brewing grows his own, cultivates his own yeast in his beard? That would be funny. The man yeah. who fears yeast is growing it in his beard. That would be good. Gosh. That'd make a great I story. I promise that uh, I, I will not put any beard Thank yeast you. in a Lampson brew. Thank you. If you do do that, Jack, it would just be keeping your enemies closer. Yes. Good point. <laughs> so when you are selecting your yeast, you want to make sure that it matches the flavors with their other ingredients, right? So you don't want something that's totally opposite of what you're you're trying to go for. Yeah, I think so. And there's some there's some great charts out there again that you know give you a good breakdown of style uh and just and i think uh, another thing that can be important is recognizing what you have available for equipment you know if it's the middle of winter and you don't have a way to control your temperature then i would not brew like i i just started to kind of dip my toe into sours and um fruited saisons and if i wasn't able to control the temperature with a uh ink bird and a heating pad, then I wouldn't brew something that requires, you know, mm -hmm. up around 75, even close to 80 degrees to get optimum fermentation, because you're going to be disappointed if that yeast doesn't do what you want it to do. You know, you have to recognize what you have for equipment and what you have for ability to hit those target temperatures. I mean, temperature control, in addition to, uh, Water quality, I think, are the two biggest improvements for uh, a minor investment compared to other things that you can 
do to improve the quality of your beer. Yeah, I think that's something that a lot of people overlook when they think about getting into brewing and even developing their own recipe is you kind of have to have the equipment to match kind of where you're going with the style beer and kind of what you want out of it. Like you can't necessarily, if you live in Florida and you want to do a lager and you don't have temp control, I mean, you're not going to be able to make a lager. No, and you're going to be disappointed and you're going to wonder what went wrong and you'll adjust something that didn't need to be adjusted and you know, when, when it was really just something that, you know, you could fix getting out, getting cold in a warm climate is a little harder than warm in a cold climate because you can, you know, add that heating element. But, uh, other than that, you know, I, I think, uh, there are, there are ways to do it that can be effective. Yeah. And like you said, there's always a MacGyvering, right? So it's simple temp control can go from using a nice little igloo cooler with, you know, you just constantly fill it with ice and water and keep replenishing that to get your temperatures down through a temp control versus actually getting a glycol system or, you know, going above and beyond those kind of temp controls. So it's really, you got to kind of think about where you want to go, how serious you want to get in it and go from there. So James, uh, why don't you tell us about some of the yeast that you've used in your brews? So this is one of those things, I don't know if Jack, when you started home brewing, this was probably like one of those things where I was absolutely out of my element where I was doing all this research online and a lot of the great yeast strains come from the West Coast. And I'm like, oh, well, I don't have access to this yeast. What can I use instead? Like it wasn't very intuitive to me at first. I don't know if you've ran into that yourself. Definitely. So what I would do is, number one, if you have a homebrew store, ask your local homebrew store, you know, what they would recommend. And some of the yeast now I've started to notice, start to put like kind of like titles with it, not just a number or not just like the traits of the yeast. They also include like Belgian ale or American ale or, and that's kind of been around for a while, but uh, I noticed a lot more brands kind of realizing a lot more people are getting into homebrewing. So they kind of want to make it as simple and painless as possible when you're trying to choose between all these different yeast strains. Yeah. And I think what it does is it makes it easy or, you know, it's, it, it's, it's marketing in a way because, you know, they want you to see, you know, uh, dry, you know, like a white labs will label something, a dry English ale yeast. And it's like, Oh, well I'm making an ESB, you know, that, you know, Oh, that has the word English in it. So, or Belgian, like you said, you know, I'm making a Belgian ale. So that's going to be, and in some ways, you know, it's marketing, but it's also accurate. You know, Mm -hmm. those are going to be the ones that you want. Absolutely. And I think uh, white labs actually has a really great yeast chart. I think I may have touched on that. Um, when we talked about yeast in our other episode, but I was, it's very in depth if anybody interested in looking at that. Yeah, I think yeah, like it shows you everything. Yeah, I think White Labs is really one of like the biggest yeast, you know, cultivators and kind of getting all the charts together and knowledge base behind yeast. I think they were probably the only one in the field for a while. Yeah, now you've got, you know, White Labs, Y yeast, uh, and then you get into your dry yeast and things like that. I prefer liquid just because it's easier, in my opinion. But uh, uh, there's certainly been times when I've wanted to do something and, you know, uh, the homebrew store has been out or they don't have something or, you know, the uh, guy there has suggested going with a dry. And so I, I've done it a few times, but uh, just for simplicity's sake, I would say that I tend to lean toward the um, liquid yeast. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that as well. I think my first beer was with a dry, dry yeast and it comes in a little packet and they kind of said it's like simple, but then it's like, do you 
recon- like it has directions on the packet, but I don't think I followed those. I just dumped it over the top. <laughs> Yeah. You like, never read the directions, I, James. And, and in life, you never yeah. read directions. So. I, I get a brand new Lego set, you know, 500 pieces. No problem. Just toss out the instruction manual and just build something that looks totally not what the picture is. <laughs> and still have a blast, you know? That's part of the creativity. But as far as in brewing, like, you can't necessarily do that. Uh, so I think that the liquid yeast definitely makes it a lot easier. And you, something you want to... Keep in mind as well when you're looking at yeast is the manufactured date as well. Very much so. I have been burned by that. Because you could get something, you know, you're pouring liquid in at the stage of, you know, kind of like near the end. I mean, fermentation after the boil, that's like the critical steps moving forward where you could really screw up your beer. Very, very easily. Shockingly easily, actually. And so I think it's very important that you do check the manufactured date on the yeast because like Jack said, it is a living organism. But yeah, I've had good luck with Imperial uh, brand of yeast. I've used Y yeast. Um, and I've even used the s- two different varieties of yeast with the exact same recipe build and had two completely different beers that one was a lot juicier and had more citrus and the other one had more of a grapefruit and f- kind of fl- more floral f- uh, aroma to it. And that was just adjusting from imperial juice yeast versus imperial citrus yeast. So I I think that that goes a little bit to what you were saying about it being one of the more important and overlooked selections. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So once you've got your basics down, then you can kind of move into what I would consider the fun part. I don't know. You guys probably think everything is fun. But for me, I love, you know, fruity beers and things that are a little bit um, more elevated, I guess in my beer. So once you've got your basics then you can start with your adjuncts and your add-ins and um, some of those additions like fruit and spices. Yeah. So Jack, we saw that you just had brewed a Bobcat sour ale. Yeah. We thought we yeah, love that I'm name. Gonna, I'm going to have to get one of those in the mail to you guys. Absolutely. Uh, little, uh, little Quinnip, because it, since it is Quinnipiac themed anyway. For sure. So when you added fruit to that beer, can you kind of walk us through the process of when you add fruit to a beer? So for me, the, uh, this beer was one that I had wanted to dabble in, uh, and actually it was sort of inspired by my wife, Steph. She had kind of decided very much out of the blue uh, that she wanted to get into sours. Uh, we have a, a brewery up here who is a husband and wife team, and the husband is all into the juicy New Englands, and his wife uh, is into sours. So on their big seven barrel system, they brew incredible, great, juicy New England IPAs. And then they have a pilot system that she does all her sours on. Um, and so we are up there all the time, or we were anyway, uh, and still, you know, ordering from them online and things like that. So we uh, just kind of got into some of their sours. Uh, Huckleberry, they do a blueberry rosemary sour Ooh. that is out of this world. They do a sour IPA in big production. Um, so I sort of wanted to dip my toe in, but like with yeasts, and there's a little bit of a theme here, I guess, that, you know, because they're both living, <laughs> I am terrified of bacteria, as I think most home brewers are because we've seen how it can ruin a batch. And now, you know, we've got the, the industry and the, and the sour crowd saying, you know, no, it's okay. Throw, throw some bacteria in there, which is sort of something that I think you uh, shy away from. So I haven't actually kettle soured anything yet or introduced any lactobacillus or anything, um, at least on its own. What I did do was I set out with the goal of producing a very 
tart saison that would uh, probably that would border on sour. I, I described it to my local homebrew store as I wanted to dip my toe in, uh, and so. I did that and I wound up buying some acidulated malt, which has some lactobacillus in it, or it's, uh, it's sprayed on it, I believe. Um, and so you, I brewed a regular batch. Uh, that, that was one that temperature was important for because uh, they wanted it um, WLP 566, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, there's 565 and 566, and it's for a Saison uh, 2 yeast and that's why uh, that's white labs uh i went through the regular process kept it i slowly increased my temperature every day started in the low 70s and uh by day six i think i had it up around 80 with a vigorous fermentation which is always great to see um and then i uh once that died down i took i did a lot of research into the best ways to do fruit um and obviously like in any case, fresh is always better, but I know we're not really in season for anything, nor would there be any place to go get it. So uh, I went with frozen. Uh, and the reason I did that was uh, the sterile nature of it uh, coming off of being frozen uh, and then introducing the beer right on top of it. So I bought a couple of bags of frozen fruit, no sugar added, uh, you know, try and buy the, I, I didn't buy the highest end organic stuff, but I made sure there was no sugar added drop that right into a secondary fermenter, put it on the bottom and then rack the beer right on top of it and uh, let it sit for about uh, four or five days. Uh, it was for a five gallon batch. I originally did two pounds of fruit and then didn't like the color I was getting. I wanted a deeper color. So I added an additional two pounds and then I just brewed this again uh, and I wound up doing five pounds this time of a combination of blueberries, raspberries, blackberries, and strawberries, and uh, got a great color uh, and a really good profile. And it's got that tartness, that uh, you know, smack that you want a little bit from uh, a, a sour beer, but uh, it definitely teeters right on the border, which is kind of nice when I would have a competition or something, and then people would say, you know, I don't, I don't like sours, and I'd say, well you know, give this one a shot. And mm -hmm. I, I want a few people over. That sounds delicious. And I definitely want to try some. And I think that's a great um, example of what you were talking about earlier. We're just kind of, it's the first time maybe didn't come out as exactly what you wanted. So you've done it again. You've kind of increased um, the fruit as you went. So I think that's, that's great to show that it's not going to be the first time the charm. You got to keep going and adjusting as needed. Absolutely. Yeah. I think, I think Jack hit two huge points um, when dealing with frozen fruit versus like your fresh fruit that most home brewers, I don't think necessarily would get the opportunity to do it with fresh fruit, but actually having frozen fruit, it does reduce the likelihood of microbes like Jack mentioned that could infect your beer, which you would not want, especially with spending all that time to build your recipe mm -hmm. for that beer. And also freezing the fruit also breaks down the cell walls within the fruit, which will also help to bring out that flavor that you want from the fruit, which I think Definitely. is key. And I think as a home brewer too, you're going to want to make sure you track how that beer is going to evolve and change flavor-wise with when you're dealing with fruit from the aroma to also the flavor. The longer the beer is going to sit, it's going to affect the flavor is going to change. So Jack, like, let us know on how um, your flavor profile has changed on that over time. Hold on, I'll take a sip of it right now. Okay. Sit break. It's good. Still good. Good to hear. 
looking forward to it. <laughs> um, and another way to tweak a recipe, which is probably one of my favorites as well, because I love the spiced ales, um, is adding some spices into there. But um, one thing you want to keep in mind is that less is actually more. Don't overspice. I would say this is definitely one of the biggest mistakes I and any home brewer has made is adding too much cinnamon or nutmeg to mm. a holiday ale or oh yeah i i ruined a great batch of it was a great uh idea too uh artisanal brew works up in saratoga springs uh brewed a batch of their double ipa and gave us the work they they did their mash and then they said come by the brewery and uh and we'll give you some of it wow. and you go home and you go home and finish it. It was a really cool idea. The goal was to see, you know, what kind of yeast do you want to add? What do you want? What do you want to do with it? And I added way too much coriander and <laughs> wound up just over spicing the beer to the point where it was uh, not very good. Sounds yeah. like a little bit of a homebrew fail. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's my biggest homebrew fail right there was I added, I had a great recipe, great Belgian wit beer that everyone, I got great feedback on. And then I was like, you know what? Like, I didn't crush enough coriander. I'm going to spike up the coriander in this. And sure enough, it ruined the beer. It was way too spicy. It overpowered, like, the flavor of the spice. And it didn't have that citrusy lemon flavor that you kind of want to balance, you know, your flavor. It completely dominated the recipe. And I'll never make that mistake ever again. You were so mad. (laughs) I was so mad because, oh, my God, so many people love that beer. And making the second recipe... And giving it and just realizing how bad it turned out, I was like, oh, my God. I was like, God, I'm such an idiot. But it's just something as a home brewer you kind of accept. And that kind of leads us to our next point of you want honest feedback and honest expectations. Mm -hmm. So I think, like, that's the key when you're a home brewer. And, you know, you want trial and error. You want, you know, your friends and family to enjoy it. But you also want them to be honest. No one wants someone to say, you got great beer. This is awesome. And you're like, oh, you want another sip? And they're like, nope. Yeah. I, I had somebody tell me once that the true test of whether somebody likes your beer is if they ask for a second. Mm-hmm. I find that I find that to be true a lot of the time, uh, but not necessarily all the time. So I try not to get discouraged when somebody says no. Mm-hmm. But, but I do think that there is something to that. Um, it's not the end all be all, like I said, but but it is. I find it rings true more often than not. Um, I think even asking, saying exactly what you just said is the, I pitch everybody here. And I, when I give them a homebrew for the first time, I say, there's only one rule. You got to be honest with me. And they always nod their head and they always say it's good. It's yeah. Exactly. So yeah. I think what, as a homebrewer, what you can do to kind of solicit the kind of feedback that you're looking for is to give them criteria to consider. It could be a simple checklist. It could be a simple, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, a simple, all right. uh, What did you think of the flavor? What did you think of the color? And you just kind of give them what feedback you're looking for to avoid that. It was good or it was bad responses because they're all going to feel bad. Like that getting over that stigma of giving someone constructive feedback, I think is tough, especially when it's family and friends. Yep. So sometimes it's the best feedback comes from strangers because they, they have no filter. They don't care. <laughs> Very true. One thing I think would be fun 
is if you're trying to get some feedback is have like a party or have people over for a sampling party and you can make up little cards. This is like my crazy planner organization thing kicking in, but make up, like you say, a checklist or a little tasting kit and you make it anonymous so people can say what they want and they don't have to, you don't have to know it was from them and you can make it a fun event. No, that that's a great idea. What I I didn't go that far, but when we had our annual Halloween parties, I kind of put out beer that was unlabeled, and some were actual breweries, and some was my own stuff, and said, "Here's an IPA, here's a this, here's a that," to see kind of what people's feedback was, and you get a lot more honest feedback when they don't think it's yours. Okay. Well, I think that kind of wraps up the whole recipe development conversation. Is there anything else you wanted to add on, Jack? I don't think so. I think it's, uh, like I said, a daunting task. But just remember, like you do with any home brewing, it's a it's an experiment. It's, uh, you know, you do everything you can to mitigate potential problems. You know, things like mm-hmm. understanding if you need to ferment at 75 degrees and, you know, you keep your house at. 68 you know then all of a sudden that becomes a little bit more difficult do you have the way Mm -hmm. to do it you know do you have the equipment that you need and that doesn't mean you have to go out and buy a fermentation chamber it just means you know understand what you have and what your capabilities are and then find a way to do it within those parameters and don't get discouraged when you accidentally add too much coriander like both james and i have done yeah, I think that's great advice, Jack. And I think it's as a home brewer, we're our number one critic. And I think no if you're not, I think then you're kind of in it for the wrong reasons. Because I think if you're not critical of your own, you know, brew, then, you know, you're just kind of doing it for the hell of it, I think. Not for the Agreed. fun. You can do it for fun, of course. I mean, mm-hmm. that's why I think all home brewers do it. That No one, I think, that I know of does it strictly to be great in competitions, to get that A, you know, in competitions. I yep. think I think it's just have fun with it. Uh, don't go too crazy, like Shannon said. Start off simple. Find your favorite beers. Have realistic expectations. And just enjoy brewing. I mean, there's no greater feeling than people have come up to me like, dude, like, you've made your own beer. Like, it might not be as good as you want, but just think of it. How many people can say they've made their own beverage? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think it's just keep your expectations in check, have a good outlook, research ahead of time, and there's free. It's not expensive to look into, you know, recipe development or what equipment you can start with. You can start small. That would be my other recommendation for people. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and just have fun with it and Get some buddies to help, you know, that's another thing. Get some friends, you know, they're going to be drinking your beer. So why not get them involved? You know, everyone can have fun. Yeah, definitely. For sure. Okay. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Jack. We really appreciate it. And if you're happy to be on. And if you're more interested on uh, Jack Lampson Brewing, he has an Instagram account at Lampson Brewing. So you can make sure you check that out. Live website up now too, lampsonbrewing.com. We're on Facebook. uh, Talk about any competitions that we have coming up we'll be uh back out at the bennington homebrew festival this august and james and shannon are are gonna come and enter as well we are <laughs> we are totally coming all we're, right we are coming this time we will we <laughs> will be we there like we will be there okay well that will do it for this week's episode thanks jack thanks, guys thank you cheers thank you. cheers thank you for listening to this week's episode of double hop beat podcast 
Follow us on our Instagram for our latest homebrewing and craft beer adventures. Direct message us at Double Hot Beat Podcast to share your experiences and become part of the pulse of brewing. You can also listen to us on our website, www.doublehotbeatpodcast.com, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Cheers by rating and reviewing us. This, this has been, been Double Hot Beat. Beat. Catch, Catch you on, on the brew side. side.